These are the Greek Myth Files, your introduction to the world of Greek myth in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the University of New Hampshire's Classics Program and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. In our past few episodes, we have treated Greek myths as important cultural stories that could perform a variety of roles and functions. In today's episode, we're going to tackle a simple but difficult to answer question. Did the Greeks and Romans believe all of their tales? This is a really complicated question, not least because belief and truth are not a simple or singular idea. But since the Greeks and Romans examined their own myths to seek out the truth, it is worth looking into the aspects of these stories that lent themselves to disbelief. As many of our listeners know, although the Greeks did not really question whether their heroes existed, the myths of the Greeks often contain some supernatural element that seems impossible or at least beyond belief. You may recall some of these yourself. Zeus, the king of the gods, turns into a bull to abduct Europa, a swan to seduce Leda, and into a satyr to rape Antiope. The Greek hero Bellerophon tamed and rode on a flying horse. Heracles killed a three-bodied giant, and Jason overcame a fearsome serpent and planted its teeth, only to have to fight off the armed men who grew from them. And finally, there are the centaurs, who had the body of a horse, but the torso and head of a human. We'll return to these hybrid creatures throughout this episode, so it's worth adding here that the vast majority of centaurs were born of an equally difficult-to-believe episode and myth. When the Greek hero Ixion lusted after the goddess Hera, queen of the gods, Hera's wife Zeus played a trick on him by substituting a cloud that looked just like Hera. It is this cloud that Ixion impregnated and gave birth to the centaurs that roamed the Greek landscape. It was these incredible monsters and events that later Greeks started to question as they approached their stories in terms of truth and falsity. This skepticism did not arrive at a single magic moment, but it was a process in which various thinkers began to subject the world to critical reasoning in a systematic way. That is, they started to ask questions. If the Greeks could question the nature of the sun, and physics for that matter, they could also treat their mythical stories in the same way. Was the sun a god, or was it just a fiery rock? Were the centaurs real, or did they arise in some other fashion? Now, whether the early Greeks who listened to the poets in the 8th century BCE, Homer and Hesiod, ever doubted their stories about flying horses and so on, we will never know. And that's because we don't have any personal reflections or reactions. All we have are the poems themselves. But about 200 years later, in the 6th century BCE, as Greeks all over, but especially in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, were beginning to subject the world around them to a new sort of thinking, we get the first glimpses of the Greeks looking with suspicion at the stories that the poets and their grandparents were telling them. In other words, the Greeks started asking the most basic of questions. Should we take these stories at face value as something real or as something else at play? One of the first thinkers to outright reject stories from Homer and Hesiod was one Xenophanes from the city of Colophon on the west coast of Asia Minor. At the time Xenophanes was writing, probably at the end of the 6th century or maybe the beginning of the 5th, 
let's say about 500 BCE. There was a lot of intellectual energy going on in that area to figure out exactly how the world worked. For instance, the early physicist Thales, who lived nearby a few generations earlier than Xenophanes, tried to figure out the most basic element from which all else was made. He made a guess, water, which of course is wrong, but the key point here is that he was trying to make headway into understanding how things really worked rather than just accepting things as they were. Xenophanes, for his part, was trying to figure out what the nature of God was, and when he looked to Homer and Hesiod's depiction of the gods, he could not stand what was said. At the center of his objection was that gods looked and acted like humans. In a really important fragment, number 15, he tells us, If oxen and horses and lions had hands, and so could draw and make works of art like humans, Horses would draw pictures of gods like horses, oxen like oxen, and they would make the bodies just like their own. It is only because people fashion gods in their own image that they look like humans, or to use a fancy word, are anthropomorphic. Another objection Xenophanes had was that Homer and Hesiod described gods as acting poorly, squabbling with each other, committing adultery, or engaging in other fraudulent and deceptive behavior. These things, Xenophanes tells us, humans do not approve of, so surely gods would not be subject to the same petty feelings and actions. In fragment 23, he says, There is one God, greatest among gods and human beings, not at all like mortals in form, nor yet in mind. Now, Xenophanes was objecting to the stories about the gods on a theological basis. Gods are good and perfect, as far from mortal weaknesses as possible. In other words, the poets did not describe gods accurately or truthfully, but invented stories to entertain and amaze. And to a certain extent, Xenophanes is describing the invention of fiction, not storytelling as an act of persuading, but as a deliberate attempt to create a fictional world. This sort of critical approach to myth also started to extend to other elements in mythical stories that seemed impossible to believe, like people who turned into cows and pigs, or monstrous creatures like the chimera, who was a part lion, part snake, and part goat. As the Greeks began to question nature and started thinking somewhat scientifically, the idea arose that the laws of nature were permanent and unchangeable. And so what does not exist in the present should not have existed in the past either. We don't run into creatures that are half bull and half man today, so, the thinking goes, they probably did not exist in the past as well. And so, by the 5th century BCE, we find various writers trying to imagine exactly how these supernatural events arose. One of the most important and earliest discussions of this comes from the great Greek philosopher Plato's work entitled Phaedrus, named after one of the characters in the dialogue. Plato, for his part, is one of the most influential thinkers and writers of any time and any place, and his works are elegant and compelling to read. He was the student of an equally important Socrates, the great questioner of everything, and even wrote down a number of works that featured Socrates as the main character, as the one we'll see soon. 
It's important to understand that Plato is not recording Socrates' actual thoughts or words in these works, but creating a literary fiction what Socrates might have said on a topic of Plato's own choosing. The Phaedrus, for its part, offers a stimulating though challenging discussion of the nature of sexual love. But for us, it is the opening of the dialogue that shows us how some Greeks tried to explain away the supernatural events featured in many myths. The dialogue starts with Socrates, the famous philosophical nuisance of Athens, walking with the title character, Phaedrus, along the Ilissus River outside of Athens. As they're going, Phaedrus asks him about a well-known story tied to the landscape. Tell me, Socrates, is it not somewhere around here that, as the story goes, Boreas the North Wind abducted Orwithia, the young daughter of the king? To this, Socrates responds, that is the story. But a few steps later, Phaedrus goes on to ask Socrates whether he believes the story, or rather the myth. He uses the term mythologema. And this prompts Socrates to go on one of his typical rants. Well, if I happened not to believe it as the ingenious types do, I would be in good company. I might just hit upon some ingenious explanation like that a gust of wind from the north blew the girl down from the rocks that sat next to the river while she was playing with her friend, and that when she died in this way, people started saying that she was snatched away by the north wind. But, Phaedrus, although I think that these sorts of explanations have a certain elegant cleverness to them, the person giving them seems to be overly clever. He also has to go to great lengths to come up with them, and even then tends to box himself in. I mean, he then has to go on and explain the form of the centaurs, then that of the chimera, and then the whole flood of such creatures, gorgons, pegasuses, and every other unbelievable creature. If, in his disbelief, he tries to explain each one of these according to what might make sense by using some sort of bumpkin logic, he's going to need a lot of free time. I just don't have the time for such nonsense. After all, I don't yet fully understand myself, so it seems ridiculous to put that aside so that I can investigate things that don't even matter. So I let all of this be for now and allow myself to believe what is normally said about them. Okay, there's a lot to unpack in this paragraph, but first, let's get one thing out of the way now. This probably does not mean that Socrates actually believed that the North Wind abducted an Athenian girl and took her northward to be his wife. Instead, Plato portrays him as insisting that such intellectual gymnastics only distract people from more important issues, like human relationships, the nature of justice and virtue, and the like. Instead, we should be using our mental energies to fix the real problems in the real world. But in this harangue, we definitely get the impression that there were a lot of would-be intellectuals out there dreaming up vaguely possible explanations for the origin of certain myths. And because there was no reason for Plato to insert this into the dialogue, after all, it moves along quickly after this, he must have felt compelled to call out such frivolous activities at the outset. What Plato and Socrates were describing was a particular form of myth interpretation called rationalization. Essentially, this involves stripping away the unbelievable elements to recreate a perfectly normal event that then became mythologized. In the Plato passage, the North Wind was not a personified god, but just an unusually strong gust of wind from the north that happened to push a young girl into the river to her death. Tragic, to be sure, but one that one could imagine happening according to the laws of nature. And then, because of the tragedy, 
people started saying things like, the north wind took Orithuia from us, which then became interpreted not metaphorically, but literally. And this is how the creation of this myth with supernatural elements came to be. It's important to understand that rationalization does not just strip the supernatural elements away, but it also seeks to show just how those elements arose in the first place. And one of the most common ways is through the corruption or misunderstanding of language or images. If you want to have fun reading an ancient book that is full of these rationalizations, then you're in luck. We have just such a book called On Unbelievable Tales, which is ascribed to a certain person named Polyphidus. His name is probably a pseudonym, but we use it anyways because we don't know who the real author is. Now, Polyphidus' work is a real hoot because it seems that he's dead serious in his explanations as to how myths arose. All of them, some 50 in total, start with a story about the traditional version of the myth, something like the Greeks say. And then with a resounding drop of the shoe, he says, that's total BS. Here's the real story. He then proceeds to offer the original event that became mythologized. Now, his explanations are often more ludicrous than the original myth was in the first place. And we'll come back to this in just a short while. But first, let's hear how he explains the origin of the centaur myth, the subject of his first explanation. They say that the centaurs were beasts that had the overall form of a horse, except for the head, which was that of a man's. Now, in case anyone believes such a beast existed, it's just not possible. The natures of horse and man are not at all harmonious. Their very food is not the same, and it's not possible for a horse's food to even pass through a human's mouth and throat. Besides, if there had been such a form then, it would also exist now. But the truth of the matter is this. At this point, Polyphidus proceeds to explain the real story. Now, bear with me, this is going to get a little complicated. There was in Thessaly a herd of bulls that went wild on Mount Pelion, making the area entirely impassable. So the king decided to offer a reward to the group that got rid of the bulls. And so some young strapping men from the foothills called Cloudland, why Cloudland matters will be explained later, they decided that the best way to do so would be to get on top of horses to make it easier to pursue and kill the bulls. This is, as Polyphidus has it, the first time anyone had ever come up with the idea of riding horseback. Here, it is necessary to get into a little bit of ancient Greek. The word for to stab is kentanumi, kentanumi, and the word for bull is tauros, like the constellation or zodiac sign. And so these men that got on horseback and started stabbing the bulls from them got the name centaurs, kentaurs, or bull stabbers. But what about the weird, monstrous form? Well, Polyphidus continues, when the bull stabbers would go around and pillage, they would ride off into the proverbial sunset, at which point people would come out and see the silhouette of, you guessed it, a man's body attached to a horse. Hence, the myth and the name all explained in a nice, neat bow and mythologized through a corruption or misunderstanding of language and images. Oh, we almost forgot to come back to the idea that bull stabbers came from a place called Cloudland or Nephili in Greek. As you might remember from the beginning of our episode, we talked about that the centaurs were born from a relationship between the king of the area named Ixion and a cloud image of the goddess Hera, whom Ixion was really trying to seduce. In a cruel trick, Zeus substituted a cloud Hera for the real thing. 
When Ixion got with Cloud Hera, he fathered, strangely, the centaurs. But the most important part here is that the word for cloud is nephili in Greek. So here, Polyphetus is explaining when the Greeks said, quote, the centaurs came from nephili, they did not mean a real cloud, but a place that happened to be called cloud land. But it's ultimately this mistaken language that led people to say and believe that the centaurs came or were born from a cloud. Polyphus literally has an answer for everything. But it's time to bring this episode to a conclusion. So did the Greeks believe in their myths? That's really a complicated question and one that we'll continue to test as we look at how other Greek and later Roman thinkers dealt with this incredibly rich tradition of heroic and divine stories. We'll wrap up this episode by looking at one more interpretation of an unbelievable myth told by the Greeks. The myth involves a hunter by the name of Actaeon, who lived near the city of Thebes. He's the grandson of Cadmus, who founded the city, and a distant uncle of the more famous Oedipus. His claim to fame is that one day, after finishing a hunt, he happened to stumble on the goddess Artemis while she was bathing in a secluded spot. Whether he meant to or not is immaterial. Seeing a goddess naked involves punishment. In this case, the story goes, Artemis, herself a hunting goddess, turned Actaeon into a stag, a deer, whereupon he was attacked and killed by his 50 hunting dogs. Some other early texts point to another, perhaps original version, where he is turned into a stag to prevent him from courting his own aunt, Semele. Other variations have Artemis visit this punishment on him for boasting that he was a better hunter than she was. Regardless of the version, we face a detail that, by common sense, could not have happened. A man turned into a deer. As Polyphetus puts it, quote, It is not true that a man can be turned into a deer or a deer into a man. The poets composed these myths so their listeners would not act arrogantly toward the divine. When the ancient travel writer Pausanias visited and wrote about the landscape around Thebes, he encountered a flat rock near a spring where the locals claimed Actaeon had slept when tired from hunting and where he saw the goddess bathing. Pausanias, who was something of a myth scholar, refers to a poem eight centuries earlier by the poet Stasichorus. Pausanias tells us that Stasichorus said that Artemis did not actually change Actaeon into a deer. Instead, she just threw a deer skin around Actaeon's shoulders, and this prompted his dogs to attack. We're not really sure if Stasichorus, a poet, was trying to explain away the impossible elements, note that the goddess is still present and doing things, but his account does raise some questions, and in fact, he was alive and writing in the 6th century BCE just before Xenophanes. However that may be, Pausanias in the 2nd century CE will have none of this. He says, My own view is the gods had nothing to do with this at all. Simply put, the hounds of Actaeon went mad. And so they were sure to tear to pieces anyone and everyone they chanced to meet without distinction. As for Polyphetus, he gives an entirely different explanation. Actaeon, he says, was a real lover of hunting, so much so that he put all of his money and time into his dogs. 
so he didn't make a living by farming or any other way because he was spending all of his time hunting. So people used to say, metaphorically, poor Actaeon, he's been eaten by his own dogs. And from that, Polyphidus tells us, storytellers invented the myth of Actaeon actually being eaten by his dogs. Now, I want to be clear about this. All of the rationalizing explanations we find in antiquity should not be considered anything approaching the truth. They are merely intellectual exercises to explain how the myths might have come to be. In fact, since we often have different rationalizing explanations for the same myth, there was probably no serious expectation that these later authors felt confident that they themselves had undercovered the real truth. The basic point is that the Greeks that rationalized myths were quite sure that the surface meaning of the stories were not literally true, and that one could, with careful scrutiny, see how they might have come to be and have those hard-to-believe elements. I also don't want to give everyone the idea that no Greeks anywhere believed in the stories that were told of the mythical period. We, in fact, have many authors, even ones living under the Roman Empire, who indicated that there were many people who believed the myths were true. Artemidorus, for example, who wrote a work on dream interpretation around 150 CE, about 800 years removed from Homer and the earliest lyric poets, pointed out that the stories about Prometheus, Niobe, the giants, and the men who grew from serpents' teeth were not only well-known, but believed by most people. A philosopher and doctor named Sextus Empiricus, from perhaps 200 CE, supports this by saying that many people put their trust in such stories. Compare this to Pausanias's more uh, skeptical approach. And even intellectuals who question the reality of myths could even suspend judgment for a while and tell the story, or parts of it, if it could help them further their own agenda. We don't have time here to get into every nook and cranny about how the Greeks thought about their own myths. What I do want to do is point out a few books that you may want to read if you're more interested in whether the Greeks believed in their myths. First, I want to point out a book by Greta Hawes, a colleague of mine from Canberra, Australia, and she wrote a book called Rationalizing Myth in Antiquity. It's a great book and gives you a lot of food for thought. Bold listeners may want to seek out a book by the French scholar Paul Venn, that's V-E-Y-N-E, called Did the Greeks Believe in Their Myths, which was published in French in 1983, but translated into English in 1988. It's a dense and challenging text even for people who know myth, but chapter 4 is more approachable and contains a good essay on the topic. In general, Venn reminds us, even critical Greeks had a hard time believing that the whole mythical system was simply a gratuitous lie, that is, an invention without any basis in reality. One could reasonably accept a mythical tradition at one point and rationalize it at another, depending on the aims of the author and the time that it was written. And at any time, an author can present a myth simply as a tradition and nothing else. And that's why you hear a lot of vague expressions like, they say, or the story goes, or as the people of the area tell it. As always, great thanks go to our students, in particular Samantha Kutsia, our sound engineer who also read from Plato's Phaedrus. We'd also like to thank our other voice actors, Julia Summer and A.J. O'Neill. As always, our theme music is Brooklyn Tea by the incredible saxophonist Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. You should go by and listen to his music. These have been the Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. See you next time. <laughs>